been an eventful week here in Central Florida. How many of you lost power? Just a couple. Anyone still without power? My mother-in-law is up in Longwood, but anyway, we pretty much braved the storm, hunkered down, didn't we? Um, We know how to do that. So in Daniel here, we got a a really great meaty passage to... uh, to open up and see what what riches God has in store for our lives. And this is a a kind of a pivoting in the book of Daniel. There's a symmetry to this book. There's 12 chapters. There's six that are the narrative of Daniel and his friends who have been brought into captivity in Babylon. And now we're pivoting into the six, six chapters of prophecy, visions that come not to kings that Daniel interprets, but to to Daniel himself, where in this case an angel interprets it for Daniel. So uh, th- there's a symmetry, there's a, a, a half and a half structure, but there's another structure within the book of Daniel that to make sense of this chapter, I need to un- unpack a little bit. There's something called a chiastic structure in the book of Daniel, where um, chapters 1 and 8 through 12 are in Hebrew, as is most of the Old Testament, but 2 through 7 here are in Aramaic. And this Aramaic structure, this Aramaic section is, is a chiastic structure. So um, I had a slide, it didn't get through, but basically you've got um, two, three, and four ascending, and then, four, and then five, six, and seven descending. So in chapter two, we saw a vision of a, a, a statue that was four kingdoms. Daniel interpreted it for Nebuchadnezzar. And then, and the theme that we learned is that God is sovereign over all of human history, over all of human rulers. And then in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered in the fiery furnace. God delivers the faithful. Chapter 4, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar was proud and uh, God humbled him. And so you saw the theme is obviously God humbles the proud. Chapter 5... It's going to have the same thing. God humbles the proud. King Belshazzar is prideful, and in the middle of the night, he is dethroned. And then in chapter 6, we saw um, what matches chapter 3. This is hard even for my head to wrap all around. Chapter 3, God delivers the faithful from the fiery furnace. Chapter 6, we saw last week, God delivers Daniel from the lion's den. And then chapter 7 now is going to mirror chapter 2, God is sovereign over all of human history, over the four kingdoms that will arise um, from Babylon. So since chapters 4 and 5 share numerous similarities, chapters 3 and 6 share numerous similarities, chapters 2 and 7 do as well. And so for us to really get a grapple on chapter 7, I want to put chapter 2 in front of us again. So just as a refresher... Nebuchadnezzar had this vision, no one could interpret it. God gave Daniel not only the interpretation, but the dream itself when no one had told Daniel what the dream was. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was of a statue with a head of gold, which Daniel interprets is you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your kingdom, Babylon, is the head of gold. The second part of the statue on the way down was, had a chest and arms of silver. The third part had a stomach and thighs of bronze. And finally, legs and feet of iron mixed with clay. And then in the vision in chapter 2, at that fourth kingdom, a stone strikes 
from like, like almost like a meteor. It just comes out of, the, out of the frame of the vision and it strikes the feet. And the whole thing, the iron, the bronze, the silver, the gold, it says are shattered and blown away in like dust in the wind and not a trace was found of these kingdoms. And that stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. So Daniel interprets this stone. Let me read to you one verse from chapter 2, and I think it's going to help us springboard into chapter 7. So Daniel 2, 44, Daniel interprets this stone and says to Nebuchadnezzar, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. I want to show you this morning that this stone in chapter 2 and this son of man that we saw in chapter 7, that God is revealing in stunning clarity that this is a foretelling of the Messiah. The Messiah is this Jewish idea that they were waiting for a deliverer, a long-awaited rescuer, God's anointed. Messiah literally means God's anointed, who would come and rescue and redeem. That's the stone that that crashes and, and shatters this statue of the four kingdoms. That's the son of man that comes at the height of this fourth kingdom in our vision today. And now that we're oriented to the book of Daniel, finally, let's actually look at chapter 7 and get oriented within this chapter. So let's just read again. We won't read the whole chapter again, but let's read the first few verses here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, pause, because now this tells us that we're not moving chronologically anymore. This doesn't happen after Daniel is delivered from the lion's den. The first year of Belshazzar would have been between chapters 4, King Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, and chapter 5, when Belshazzar is, is dethroned. So this happens years prior, a few years rewind from last week. Daniel saw a dream and a vision of, of his head as he lay in his bed. Just, then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred up by the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first, so let's look at the fir- first one first. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. All right, so we are told later in verse 17 that these four beasts represent four kingdoms. And so which ones? Are we, we can just speculate here, who's this first beast that he saw? And many generations of Christians have speculated it was probably Babylon. It mirrors chapter 2. Daniel said, the head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's your kingdom of Babylon. But this, this lion with eagle's wings, uh, really, you almost get shivers because modern uh, archaeological excavation has uncovered the, the gates of Babylon, the capital city, and the royal palace, the gates to the palace, are both guarded, flanked by, by two um, lions with eagle's wings. So 
it's really not that much of a head scratcher to know who this first beast is. The wings were plucked off and it falls to the ground. This is Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation where he's literally eating grass, okay? So uh, then he's lifted back up. It's picked back up and the mind of a man is given to it and it's restored. This is Nebuchadnezzar when his mind of sanity returns to him. Now, verse five, the second beast, behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Now, this second beast, we'd assume right off the bat that this would be Medo Persia, uh, the empire of the Medo Persians that conquered Babylon. Daniel wouldn't have known this at the time of the vision. Nebuchadnezzar was still on the throne. But uh, on a night when King Belshazzar is woken in the middle of the night and summarily executed and all of Babylon wakes up the next morning to find there is no Babylon. They're under a, an entirely new empire, the Medo-Persian Empire conquered by King Darius. Daniel would probably pretty quickly think back to that dream I had a couple of years ago, this vision, and he might put the pieces together. Together, Okay, a bear that's raised up on one side. Well, this Medo-Persian Empire, you can kind of tell who's doing the heavy lifting here. It's the Persians. For those history buffs, not a lot of people geek out over the Medes, but the Persian Empire is, is a thing of wonder to look back on. So it's raised up on one side, and, and it's got three ribs in its mouth from the carcasses of presumably three victims. One could be Babylon, another would be Egypt, since Persia conquered Egypt, and then the third being Lydia. And Persia rules for 200 years And so Daniel dies before seeing now the transition to the third and the fourth beast. Verse 6, we see the third beast. After this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So winged leopard, four heads. This one again isn't that much of a head scratcher. When you look at at history, we, we have hindsight being 2020 the lep- a leopard's trademark distinction among the creatures is it's it is swift it's agile now the nation that overthrows persia the empire that comes on the scene next is greece and it has its great monarch at the helm of the ship alexander the great It doesn't get more swift than conquering the known world by the time you're 32. And at 32, I mean, this is without equal in all of human history. This is stunning from all the way from Europe to India. He started from nothing and, and built this incredible empire. And after Alex's death at the age of 32... His empire is divided into four generous portions that are given to his four military commanders, his four generals. And this isn't from the Bible. This is just from secular history books. Greece became a four-headed beast, foresaw foresaw by Daniel hundreds of years ago. Four heads, four generals from the swift leopard. Okay, verse 7, this final beast And then I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Let's stop there. That's all we need uh, to really 
pinpoint that this beast here, this kingdom, says it doesn't look like any of these other beasts. See, we had a lion, we had a bear, we had a leopard. This one, Daniel's like, it's just a beast. It's a consummate beast. It's different from all the others that were before it, all the other kingdoms that were before it. So, boys and girls, can anyone think of an empire in human history that wasn't like any before it or any since? Rome comes to mind after, after Greece was Rome. And you've got to remember that these previous dynasties, they held their power for a couple hundred years max. Pretty similar arc to just like the United States, this peak of greatness and then in decline. None can hold a candle to the 1,500 years of Roman dominance. 1,500 years. It hasn't been done before. hasn't been done since. And it's not just the duration of the Roman Empire. This beast, it says, is terrifying and dreadful. Well, yeah, these are the guys that developed crucifixion as the most, as a method that's just most efficient at extracting every ounce of agony out of its victim before they're dispatched. The Roman Empire held on to its power because there just weren't that many men lining up to challenge the authority of Caesar. There weren't that many brave enough, stupid enough to sign up for their own crucifixion. Now in this vision, it's at the height of this fourth beast's reign, chronologically, where the plot breaks its cycle. Finally, I'm, I'm glad it breaks the cycle because I'm, I'm tired of give, being a history professor right now. The plot cycle breaks, and what I want you to see in all of this is that hundreds of years before Jesus... Daniel didn't know this man, Jesus, would come during a Roman Empire. He didn't have these details. But God is being quite clear. Hey, four empires from now, the long-awaited deliverer will come. At the height of the Roman Empire, God says, I'm going to step in and deliver a crushing blow to the violent, power-grabbing, a beastly system of this fallen world. And that rock we saw in chapter 2 that will fill the whole earth, he will surely come specifically at the height of the arrogance of the greatest empire the world has ever known. Seen by Daniel hundreds of years before it happened. Now, we've looked at the beast, but if you read this chapter... A masterful painter knows how to draw the eye of the viewer along the canvas toward a focal point. And can you see how the light is being cast in this chapter? We've looked at the beasts, but the light seems to be drawing us toward another ruler with an eternal dominion. It seems to be pulling us toward the Son of Man. Let's read verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Daniel, his reaction here, as, a, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Daniel can't believe his eyes. What is going on? He sees the Ancient of Days enthroned in flames in all his glory and suddenly he looks and, and it looks like a human being is, is approaching the Ancient of Days. He's approaching the uncreated one and he's given dominion of the earth. It's, it's stunning. But it actually makes a lot of sense, Daniel. Remember, God's original plan for this planet was to give it to man. So the man would cultivate it, make something beautiful of it, and reflect the glory back to the giver, back to the creator. That was God's plan. Are God's plans ever thwarted? Are the Ancient of Days plans ever thwarted? Oh, wow, we got some teaching to do. (laughs) Come on, are they ever thwarted? No, no, this was God's plan. So, of course, God would one day set things right and give dominion back to a son of man, a son of Adam. This son of man, he's a new Adam, This term, son of man, in fact, is a callback to the beginning of the story when the need for a deliverer first arose as as Adam 1.0 sold himself into slavery to sin. And this enemy had to be defeated by a man. God promised this right at, at the fall. In chapter 3, there's curse, curse, curse on the serpent, on the woman, on the man, and on the earth. And then there's this prophetic, hopeful blessing that says the offspring of man would crush this lying serpent's head, would break the spell of sin. And the son of man, the son of Adam, Remember in the Hebrew, Adam, Adam is the Hebrew word for man. This son of man is that prophesied Messiah, Redeemer. This scene that Daniel is witnessing, I believe, is the ascension of Jesus after his victory on the cross from the grave. He's slain by the fourth kingdom, and Daniel actually foresees this in chapter 9, we'll get to in a few weeks. Uh, he's slain by this fourth kingdom at the height of its arrogance, and then in a smashing victory, he is resurrected, and he returns home to heaven victorious from the battle against his foes as a man, his foe being sin and death and Satan. And he has won his bride. The gates of heaven swing wide. Psalm 24 paints the picture of the Son of Man coming and, and be lifted up, O you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
He's ushered before the ancient of days, as we see here in verses 13 and 14. He's ushered before the ancient of days, a man, a human being. Keep your finger here in this text in Daniel 7 and turn to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. Now this scene that I'm painting that I want you to see, well, the scene that Daniel's painting, and Jesus ascending in victory. Let's read it from a few verses of Daniel chapter 5. Uh, sorry, sorry, keep going. Revelation chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1 and just turn on the inner Bob Ross of your mind and paint this picture for yourself of these happy little, I don't know. Uh, Then I saw, verse 1, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look inside. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This lamb approaches the Ancient of Days, takes the scroll from his hand, not uh, not in a, a, you know, mean, rebellious way, but takes the scroll, is given the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. This scene here in Revelation is mirrored in Daniel 7. This Lamb of God, the Son of Man, is given glory. Verse 14 said that, uh, back in Daniel 7, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All peoples. He's not just the son of David. He's not just a Jewish king uh, for for the Jewish nation. He's the son of man for all mankind because Right here in Revelation 5, his blood, his blood ransomed a people from every tribe, language, 
people, nation, no one can be left out. This Jesus must be commended to every tribe. This announcement of the new king being crowned in glory. The Son of Man has ascended to the throne of the Ancient of Days. There's a man on the throne. Jesus. That's why Jesus, as he ascended, he left his disciples and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all ethne, all peoples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Teaching, make, making this announcement, there's a new ruler of, of this world. It's no longer Satan, the ruler of the power of the air. It is a man, and it is the Son of God, Jesus, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. You tell them, you tell the world, the time to surrender the keys to your own little kingdom has come. You've been building your own little dominion in your life day by day, and you've becoming more beastly with every ounce of power and comfort that you amass, that you achieve. The time has come. Open up your gates that the king of glory may come in and rule and reign. The scene here in Revelation chapter 5 has myriads of angels and human voices crying out, worthy is the lamb. That's the main reason to evangelize. Number one, you could have many reasons. You know, one, they're dying and they don't have any news that their sins could possibly be forgiven, that there's a name given by which they could call on for salvation. You could obey because he said so. There's another good one. You could obey because he's promised a reward for his faithful followers going out and making disciples. But the real bottom reason that we must get this announcement of a new king on the throne out to every corner of this world is that he's worthy. He's worth it. He, Jesus, for his sacrifice, for his bloodshed, for every people group, deserves glory, deserves honor and recognition, deserves obedience from every single people group, and he will have it. His plans are never thwarted. This is a coming day when we will see in Revelation chapter 5. It's complete. It's happened. The saints have gone out to all the nations and brought this announcement of King Jesus. Now the last phrase we looked at here in Revelation 5 and then we'll be back in Daniel 7. They're singing, worthy are you to take the scroll, but now verse 10, you have made them, these people that he ransomed, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Say that with me, they shall reign on the earth. This is really helpful to me. I don't know about you, but when I was reading Daniel 7, I got confused. At any point, did anyone read Daniel 7 and get a little bit off-centered? Like, what? Um, I got confused because, and let's go ahead and go back to Daniel 7. First, the Son of Man is given an eternal kingdom. 
eternal. No one comes on the throne after the Son of Man. He's the final king of this earth. But then, verse 27, for instance, says, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. So I'm really helped by Revelation 5 to see this lamb. He's worthy because he's won the victory and then he's doubly worthy because he's brought us into his victory and said, come rule with me. I want to give you dominion. When my daughters see me cooking, which is most every day, they find a a way to crawl up onto the countertop or they ask me to pick them up and put them up. I want to help. I want to help. And so... Every teaspoon that's measured, I am going to do the measuring because I want it to be precise, and then I have to give it to one of them, and they put it in. And then now the other one's jealous, and she gets the next cup of flour or whatever. No matter how many sharp knives or hot oil, pots full of oil are on the counter, they need to be there and be a part. And I give them dominion over the teaspoon. I, I let them share in. They don't want to just taste the victory at the end, what it goes on the table. They want to be involved. They want the honor and the dignity of being involved in the dominion of, of the ruling over the, the loaf of bread or whatever it is. The saints of God here in Daniel 7, it's literally, it means the holy ones. Other translations translate it, the holy ones of God. They're the ones to inherit the kingdom of this world. And they're characterized by holiness. That word holy doesn't just mean bright, shiny, glorious. It means set apart. It means other than, different from the rest. And they're the ones to inherit the kingdom of this world. The ones characterized by holiness. And that's the reason that they're persecuted in this text. We see a war waged against the saints, against the holy ones. Verse 21, and I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. What do we do when, when we're the saints, we're the holy ones, we're living a pure life, and yet it doesn't get better, but it often gets worse. What do we do when evil prevails? And we ask God, why? Why is the world going this way? Why have you allowed this? And this question that we ask was on the lips of another son of man, the son of man, Jesus, as he hung on the cross. Why? Oh God, God, why have you forsaken me? And he learned obedience through his suffering, Hebrews says. We learn obedience through our suffering. We learn that there's a crown, there's a, oh, I already ruined it. There's a crown, there's a cross before a crown. There's a cross that comes before the crown. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. An old bluegrass song goes, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. It's a nice song. Um, <laughs> so, uh, we're persecuted for our holiness in this life. 
We're persecuted for our obedience to the rule of Jesus instead of the rule of this world's beastly system. So the obedience to Jesus, as we talked about, is, is taking this announcement, making disciples of all nations, all peoples. And these, these unreached people groups now in the world, they don't want you to come. They don't want that announcement that their rule and their reign is over and there's the rule of another king. They don't want that. They will kill us. This world is not friendly to us. So even here in America, this election coming up, I can tell you who wins right now. Another beast. So I don't mean beast number five. I don't mean the Antichrist, though you can connect the dots to to things Trump has said. But, (laughs) uh, sorry, Uh, I don't mean that, but I do mean another beast, another regime that's not founded in the righteous judgments of God, another regime that is, is alien to the rule and the reign of Jesus and his commands and obedience to him. So let's just hunker down until the storm passes. Our kingdom's coming. Let's just, like we did this week, get down in our houses and wait for this storm to pass. And then it's not safe to go outside in this world. That's not the mindset that Daniel had in captivity to the first beast of Babylon. Let's engage. Let's bring our worldview into politics. Let's seek the good of this city Let's get outdoors and actually do something, but never hoping for something that's not promised outside of the rule and reign of the Son of Man. We're only promised an unshakable eternal kingdom by His Lordship. This culture is not our friend. We do have a kingdom, and it's not this one, thank God. This illusion that we have been living under for, for quite a long time that this world's supposed to be friendly to us. This was our country, and now it's gone and taken away by all these wicked sinners. No, our country, our homeland is cut from an entirely different cloth. We seek a kingdom that cannot be shaken. First, we see in in this text in verse 25 the saints are given into the hands of wicked rulers to suffer but then in a stunning reversal as we read in verse 27 the kingdoms of this world and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high what is this greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven that will be given to the saints. What's the greatness of the kingdom, that, of all the kingdoms of this earth that we'll one day possess? What makes a nation great? I mean, it's their cultural achievements, their artistic vision, their scientific, architectural, intellectual, culinary achievements. All of this won't be destroyed one day. They'll be handed over to the saints to rule forever and ever on the new earth just as God originally intended. This was his plan, and it hasn't been thwarted yet, and it will never be thwarted. For us, as mankind, to be faithful representatives, kings under him, charged with the joyful task of developing and expanding the glory of God on this planet. 
Because at the end, we see Jesus with a tattoo on his leg that says, King of Kings. He will always be King of Kings. That means that there's other kings under him that he is the king of, right? That's us, that, as we will rule. He, Jesus said this pretty plainly. He said, those of you who are trustworthy under my rule in this life, I'm gonna be able to entrust with five cities, 10 cities. You will rule and reign in my kingdom one day on this renewed earth. So as application, we ask, that's good for Daniel thousands of years ago. That's good for someday off in eternity, long after we're dead, cool. But for application, we ask, am I living trustworthy to the king who is enthroned now? Am I living in obedience under his commands? Am I seeking to know his, his ways and, and for his rule to be broadcast through my life to my neighbors and my family and my coworkers. Is that how I'm living? As if he really is king right now on our real throne over this real planet? Am I living as a faithful servant? Now to end, let's look back at verses nine and 10 because we really glazed over this vision of the ancient of days. And this is where I wanna land As I looked, verse 9, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire. This is the third mention of flames and fire from the ancient of days. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. We would each do well to consider the day coming soon when the books will be opened as each one of us stand before the uncreated one with no more alibis, no one to compare our choices to, no one we're better than, it's just us as a naked soul before the ancient of days enthroned in fire and the books are opened. And when the throne of, and and when this throne of God will no longer be a vision we're trying to imagine, but it'll be what our eyeballs are witnessing. And we'll stand before him. And we don't think often about this moment. And we don't think long about that moment for good reason. It's rightly terrifying. It should be terrifying. We are creatures of corruption, of sin, of wood, hay, and stubble, and we know what the devastation of fire can do on our lives that we've built. But the Son of Man walked through the fiery judgment of God, and he fell, crushed under the hammer of God's justice, 
writhing like a worm nailed to a tree. When it was foretold that the Son of Man would come at the height of Rome, Jesus knew what it would mean to be the victim of the cruelest torture that the greatest beast could devise. He knew what it would cost him at this point in Daniel. But since the Son of Man was also the Son of God, the Father vindicated his Son on Sunday morning, calling him out of the grave, validating the payment for sin. The check cleared. It didn't bounce. It cleared with uh, my name attached. My account now is paid in full. It is finished, Jesus said. As Paul said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is what it means for, those to, for someone to be in Christ. It means you're united with him in his death. You're united with him in his resurrection. There's a cross and then a crown. It means we're dead to sin and alive to God. And now, this vision of the Ancient of Days enthroned in fire, we can long for that day when the fire will wash over us and wash away every imperfection and every impurity of my life. All the wood, hay, and stubble will be cleansed and purified away, and all that's left will be pure gold, precious stones purified by the fire of God. Would you stand with me today? We come to this table where Jesus has bought his bride with his own blood. Servers, would you go ahead and take your place? And so you come to this table not because you're, you're perfect and you've lived a, a, you know, a, a saint, like a holy one. You, you're like, yeah, it was me this week. I've lived as a holy one. It may not have been you, but the blood of Jesus washes and renews everything. And you can now, for the first time or again, bring your, your life under the dominion of King Jesus in obedience to all that he's commanded. And if that is the posture of your heart, uh, an, uh, if the posture of your heart is a, a knee bowed, to the rule of Jesus in your life, you're welcome at this table. He's bought you with his blood and you're commanded to come and in remembrance of what he's done, celebrate it until he comes again. But if that's not you and if you're not ready to make, uh, to, to enthrone Jesus as Lord of your heart and your ways, your day-to-day life, take this time in your seat and do not come to this table. It's, this isn't a sacrifice for you. This is a time for you to listen, to open your ears and actually hear what God might be speaking to you in this time. Jesus, thank you. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. All glory, everything glorious within us, we lift up to you and we come to your table in worship and in gratitude that you're worthy and you've bought us with your blood. We long for the day when we will forever be wrapped up in your love, secure, held fast, and cleansed of 
sin in our lives forever. Amen. You may come to the table.